turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, where we have, pastoral hyperbole aside, what is clearly the most amazing prayer ever prayed in Scripture. It's Jesus praying to the Father. And this prayer comes at the very end of what has traditionally been called the upper room discourse. This is when Jesus has gathered his disciples up on the last evening of his life in the upper room and they're sharing breaking bread together. And this is a time where the, where the disciples are anticipating glory. They're, in, they're anticipating triumph. This is going to be the time where they take the right and the left hands of Jesus as he finally completely establishes his reign, the reign of the God of Israel, over the blasted Romans. But as we've seen in these last three chapters, this upper room discourse has not gone as planned as far as the disciples go. It's been, it's been, a, been a very difficult, treacherous course. Jesus has told them he's going away. And not only is he going away and leaving them, he tells them they will, in fact, abandon him that very night. Peter, the spokesman for the apostles, says, Jesus, I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, maybe two or three hours I give you at the most, Peter. You'll deny me three times. And if that isn't bad enough, not only will I be betrayed by one of you, one of my trusted few, but in fact... When I leave, I'm leaving you ragtag guys behind to carry on the mission, and you can expect nothing but opposition, difficulty, struggle, persecution, and even death on the way. So this is a difficult word that the disciples are absorbing. And Jesus finally, he's, he's, he's unloaded this news, and then he turns and does something that for us Westerners, us capitalists, us individualists, seems so striking, seems so odd, seems so out of place. He stops to pray. And, and sort of the industrialist in us is like, wait a minute, Jesus, there's not time to pray. You need to do something. Fix this mess. Get to work. We're on the precipice of disaster. This is, this is completely bewildering to them. But yet, as we saw in the first part of this prayer last week, guys, this prayer is just full of the radiant ray of gospel hope. Jesus says, this all seems random to you, but it's not random. In fact, I'm doing exactly what the Father sent me to do. I'm coming to secure my bride. I have, I have, my Father has chosen a people, and he says no one will snatch them out of my hand, and, and now he's sending me to die for those people, to die for you, to secure your salvation. Not to make it a possibility, but to actually make it certain. I'm here to secure your eternal future, church. I'm here to capture my bribe, and that's where we left it last week. But we can begin to imagine, and some of you might have even felt this for yourself as you listen to this prayer, as Jesus is praying these lofty prayers for his people, for his sheep, for his bride, that he's never going to lose any, that he's going to die for them. I think it's not out of the question to think that some of the disciples, probably many of us, left thinking, but but Pastor Paul, all that sounds great, but how can I be sure I'm actually one of those? 
the, the promises are glorious, but Pastor Paul, are they glorious for me? You know, in, in 22 years of pastoral ministry here for Oaks, I would say that when people have wrestled and struggled with questions of faith, sometimes, sometimes, they are wrestling with, is Christianity true? Is the Bible true? Is Jesus true? Philosophically oriented um, sorts of questions and struggles. But, but by far, I would say that's, that's not the most common struggle. The most common struggle is not, is this true? Is Jesus real? Is the Bible true? Is God real? It's more, is it real and is it true for me? Because sometimes I, I feel like I know God can do these things and he's doing them, but I feel so distant from him. I'm, I'm so out of the loop. I've been, I've been mired in sin. I've been walking away from him. God, do I really belong to you? Is, are these passages really for me? And that's what today's passage is all about. See, Jesus knows that the disciples are fearful. They're doubting. They're struggling in their faith. And so he does the most important thing he can do for them and for us and for you. He prays for you. He prays for them. And we're going to look this morning at what exactly he does pray. Think about this, church. If you could ask, if Jesus were here, which he is, in your midst, what's the one thing you, you hope, wish, that Jesus is praying for you? Maybe it, it involves some relationship or some health situation or marital problem or parenting problem or job problem or money problem. But as always, Jesus prays the most important thing. And so if you are willing, able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 19. We're going to flash it on the screen if you don't have it. But this is Jesus speaking. He's praying. He's prayed for himself. Now he begins to pray for the disciples and for us. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I gathered them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may have joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified 
in truth. Let me pray for us, folks. Lord, I just sense this morning there's a lot of us that really need to have these amazing, precious truths dripped into our veins like a lifeline. Lord, we need to, to feed, to absorb, to drink, to feed upon these amazing promises, these amazing words that we might know that they are intended for us and that you orchestrated all of these things for our eternal joy. So Lord, give us that hope, give us that perspective, give us that sight. Lord, we pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. I think there's one overarching foundational request in this passage which governs everything else. It's, it's, it's the central request upon which everything else in the text flows. I think you can find it in verse 11, the second part there, where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. It says the same thing in verse 15. Lord, keep them from the evil one. Look at verse 12, same thing, Jesus prays. I have kept them and I have guarded them. In other words, I've, I've, I've been with them, Lord. I've guarded them, I've kept them, but now I'm going away. So I'm asking you, as you've been keeping them, pardon the vernacular, keep on keeping them. That's what Jesus' prayer is. Understand, church, this, this promise is not just for the disciples, although he is addressing him, them here. If you look down in verse 20, which we didn't read, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? You. Me. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ. God is answering prayers that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago. I find that astounding. I find it amazing. Oftentimes people will say to me, Pastor Paul, God doesn't seem to be answering my prayers. We've been praying this thing for decades. Just wait. Maybe a century, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. God is faithful. Even we're, when we're not expecting or know for certain what form the answer takes, he's faithful to answer those prayers. That's what he's doing here. But this idea of keep, Father, keep my people. I have kept them. Keep on keeping them. The, the, the word kept, that, that might sound somewhat familiar to you. We had a capital campaign that was built around this idea of kept. And we were sort of looking at the strategic aspect of this. What has God kept us for? And don't worry, we're not going to try to cram four capital campaign messages into today. What we really want to take a, take a peek at is... What are the theological guts, if we can say it that way? What are the innards, as we would say in East Tennessee? What are the inner workings of, of what Jesus means here when he says, no matter what, church, no matter what, no matter what happens out there today, no matter what kind of shooting there is in a synagogue, what kind of explosive device is mailed to a political leader, no matter what happens today in your life or in this world, guess what? I am keeping you for myself. That's where we're going today. So there, there's four things we want to we want to we want to briefly touch upon this morning. Number one, what do we mean exactly by kept? Number two, who is kept? Three, how are we kept? 
And then lastly, why are we kept? So that's where we're heading in these next few minutes together. First of all, what is it? What, what does Jesus mean when he says, Father, keep them? What do we mean by kept? As I mentioned, we were, we were at the conference this past weekend in, in, week in Louisville, and Susan and I were, were leaving one night after one of the sessions with, with Joe and Julie, the Haverlocks, and, we, and, the, and the church where we were meeting, Sojourn Community Church, was right in the middle of this neighborhood. And so we walked by this house on the way in, and as we walked in the, in the, in the houses are kind of like right on top of the street, and so we were on the sidewalk, and we just heard this incessant banging over and over again. Like, like somebody was pounding against the wall or, so, or a bird was flying into a window repeatedly. But as we got out to the house, we realized this was no bird. This was just your friendly neighborhood Rottweiler, your pit bull. And maybe there's a difference in those two. I don't know. They're both just beastly sorts of animals. Anyway, what this dog was doing, it was getting a running start and it was launching itself into this big glass window that covered the door. It's actually a window on a door because he was so anxious to get at us. I don't know why, probably to eat us anyway, to, to, to get his teeth around our neck. And it was quite disturbing, shall we say, to watch this dog repeatedly running up to the glass, run to the glass, smash it, throw himself, hurdle himself through the air. Well, after the, the session was over, for some inexplicable reason, we do what tourists do. We walk by that same house again. But this time, the dog was not inside. The dog was outside. And he was in a fenced yard. And I kid you not when I say this dog could jump higher than a velociraptor. I mean, he was like leaping and leaping. And, and your future worship pastor, Joe, was walking. And I, it, he was, I kid you not, this close to being permanently maimed. And, and that would not have been a fun thing for him at all or, or for us. And when we think about this word keep, it actually means to protect, to watch over, to guard, like a dog standing guard over its territory, who will ferociously stop at nothing to make sure you don't come on their turf. You get the idea? That's the meaning of the word keep. Jesus says, Father, this is what I'm praying that you do for you and for you and for you, all who know me, all who trust me. Now, as Westerners, when we think about this idea of protection or, or being kept, a lot of times we think about that physically, like what it means to be kept from harm. You know, we are, we are such a risk-adverse culture, we are somehow deceived into thinking that we can program or eliminate all risk in our life, whether it's our personal safety or riding in a car or our health or any such thing that if we just maintain enough control over our life, we're going to be kept from physical harm. Obviously, that is an illusion, but, but that's not what Jesus is referring to. See... A lot of times, because we are Westerners, capitalists, we assume, we read those sort of things into the text like this. And it's very easy for a preacher to get up to say, well, what Jesus is promising you is health. And if you don't have health, you're not trusting God enough. You're not praying enough. It's, it's clearly his will that he keep your body from all harm. Or, or someone else might say, well, what Jesus is talking about here is, 
is your is your physical stature is your is your money is your quan is your dinero and if you are really following god and prospering in him you will absolutely prosper financially and if you're not what's clearly clear you don't have enough faith you're not giving enough you're not trusting enough see and it goes on and on and on and on and there's nuanced versions of that the bigger and better life, your best life now, if you're not experiencing that, there's something wrong with you. Guys, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And by the way, because of false teaching like that, many professing Christians have fallen away because they've been disillusioned because at some point the music stops. There's no more chairs to hop into. We, we, we walk away from the faith because we're surprised by suffering. Or we're disillusioned or we're embittered. And so it's really, really important that we understand what Jesus means by kept here. See, we, we, we know, number one, this is not talking about physical health, material possessions, because that wasn't the experience of the apostles, was it? In fact, wherever the gospel has thrived and the church has grown, it's never been the circumstance of the church. The church has always thrived and grown amidst adversity and persecution. So it wasn't the experience of the disciples. But number two, it's not what Jesus has repeatedly told us all throughout this upper room discourse. What has he told them? Don't be surprised. No servant is greater than his master. They're going to persecute me. Guess what? They're going to persecute you. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to, to drag you before the tribunal. Um, in fact, you may very well, in fact, 10 of the 11 here physically lost their lives. So, so clearly, this is not what Jesus is talking about. And, and the sooner that we can understand that, even as affluent and protected Westerners, the better. What Jesus is talking about, Christian, understand is this. He's talking about the keeping of your soul. He's talking about spiritual preservation. He's saying that God's commitment to us as his people is that we will endure that we will persevere to the end, that we will not fall away, that we will not turn away from the living God no matter how much the darkness comes in. Christian, be assured this morning, whatever is happening in your life, and it may be bleak and dark and despairing for sure, Jesus has made a specific promise to you. It's been one of the points over and over of John. He says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. No one, no one, no one can take them, can pluck them out of my hand. That's the promise of this passage. That's the promise. That's what Jesus means by kept. We sing this in Martin Luther's great hymn, the body they may kill, right? The body they may kill, but the soul endures forever he will not abandon us that's what it means to be kept which leads to our second question who are the kept are you part of the kept am i part of the kept how do we know look at verse eight 
Jesus says, for I have given them, and that's us, the disciples, his people, the kept, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm using this morning just to kind of drop all sorts of nuggets about the conference this past week. Um, so I'm 50 years old. I'm in the top 5% of, of top five age bracket in terms of, of youth. It's a young network. It's a young conference. Three out of four dudes are, are tatted up. I tried to convince our staff team we need to get like the Four Oaks tattoo with some barbed wire or something like that anyway. They, they didn't like that. But, but there is one of your elders here, by the way, who is tatted up. He has a tattoo. He, he tries to keep it hidden. Well, I'll let you try to figure out who it is and where. Either, either, either he got it in the military or got it in his fraternity in college or some such foolishness. No, we, we like tattoos. But this, but this distinguishing mark, understand something. He did get it in the military. Getting the tattoo didn't make him a soldier. Didn't make him a sailor. Getting a tattoo is just what sailors and soldiers did. It was a distinguishing mark. Okay, do you get where I'm going with this? Jesus is saying, in the same way, the word functions in the life of those who are kept. See, just holding up a Bible and holding it over your heart, or or, or speed reading it, or, 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 or mechanically walking through it, that doesn't make you one of the kept that doesn't make you a believer that doesn't make you a a sheep the distinguished what he's meaning is that the distinguishing mark of those who are kept those who belong to christ are those who abide in and receive his word that's what a sheep does they listen to the voice of their shepherd the savior again this isn't cause and effect you obey you read god's word that makes you a Christian. That's, that's, not, that's the improper order. Rather, Jesus is saying that receiving my words, the words of Christ, are an indicator that God's Holy Spirit is alive and active in your heart. That's what distinguishes the disciples. That's always, by the way, always what distinguishes the disciples of Christ for us. Not that we perfectly obey. Sometimes we imperfectly obey. Sometimes we fall into deep sin. But always, always there's something in our hearts that the Holy Spirit activates to say, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I need a Savior. God, I, 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 I don't want to obey right now, but I want to want to obey. There, there, there's a fundamental distinguishing feature think about the disciples as we've looked at them in the gospel of john all over the map they're running they're hiding they're afraid they're fearful they're obeying imperfectly they they scatter here mere hours from now but we have to ask them ask the question what's the difference between the 11 and judas if you look down at verse 12 jesus says I've kept all of you except the one, the son of destruction. It literally means the son of perdition. I've kept all of you 
except that one because he didn't belong to me. He didn't listen to me. Remember, at the beginning of this upper room discourse, we saw that Jesus, that, that it was in fact Judas sitting at the right hand of Jesus, the seat of honor. And it was Jesus who extended the bread to Judas to break and to receive. And at that moment, could Judas not have said, Lord, I hear your word. It's, I don't want to betray you. Judas was not a Robotan. Judas was not acting robotically, mechanically. He was fully and completely responsible for what he did. See, it wasn't that Judas was a more wretched sinner than the rest. Because Peter stands outside in the courtyard and he denies Jesus three times. It's just that when Judas hears the words of Christ, he turns. He repents. He changes. Folks, this is always the distinguishing mark of the Christian community. John takes great pains to tell us this in his epistle to the readers and the churches in Ephesus in the first century. But the disciples of Christ have the same cry that Peter has. And this is in chapter 6, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, get this. You have the what? The words of eternal life. See, this is not a tit-for-tat exchange where we bring our obedience to God and God gives us eternal life in exchange. I don't know, he's, just, he's talking about a distinguishing mark. He's saying, my people, they hear my voice. They, they recognize my word. They, they, they turn back to me. I mean, think about this, Peter. And, and, and let's be honest, this, 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 can, be, this can be hard it can feel, when we are straying, honestly, like we're not being kept. Like we're not one of God's people. Think about Peter, 40 days from the time that he betrays Jesus, 40 days to sit in that. It was not until four days later that Jesus is walking on the shore. And we're going to find this out here in a few chapters. And he says, hey boys, come up here, let's have some fish. And what does Peter do? Broken Peter, sinful Peter, betraying Peter, because he is one of the kept, because he is a sheep, he, despite his guilt and his shame, he casts off his cloak, he runs through the water, and he embraces his Savior. Why? Because he hears the Savior's voice. Those who are kept are distinguished by the fact that their life, their heart, there is oriented to the authority and the words of Christ. Just have to ask you before we leave this point, what about you? What about you? You know, that's what a Christian is. A Christian literally means a follower of Christ. Someone who acknowledges the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ over everything. Number three, third question. 
how are we kept? And I just, I think this, for all these points, this is maybe the most profound and personal for me. How are we kept? As a sheep today, how does God keep you? Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Sounds like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, right? Okay. All mine are yours, yours are mine. I am glorified in them. What's going on here? See, in the Old Testament, it was the high priest's job to come before God on behalf of the, of the people of Israel, Yom Kippur, one time a year, where the priest was to offer sacrifice. He was to sprinkle the altar with blood, some incense. He was, to, he, he was to appear before God one time to confess and to atone for the sins of the people, to mediate for him, for them. And one of the things the high priest, though, would never do is that he would never sit in the presence of God. He would never sit. He would move around. In fact, it was such a high and holy moment that, that the priest would wear bells on the end of his garments and robes so that he would jingle as he moved around. And they had a rope tied to his leg. Why was the rope tied to his leg? Because if there was no jingling going on, dude was out, okay? Like, assumed room temperature, and they were not going in to get him. They had to drag him out, right? Well, the picture is here... And there's a reason this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's that Jesus is here saying, I'm praying for them right now. And I am going away. But even though I'm going away, I'm going to continue praying for my people. And I'm not moving around, not at rest in the presence of God. In fact, I'm sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8.1 says this. Let's read that. Let's look at that if we can get that up on the screen for a second. Now, the point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Now, listen. The Jewish high priest could never sit down. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where Jesus is right now. Seated at perfect peace, at perfect rest, besides the Father. And what is he doing? Romans 8 makes it very clear that what Jesus is doing now for us is he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. Because do you realize right now, regardless of what the circumstances of your life might look like and feel like, despite whatever your feelings might tell you, about how close or not you are to God, Jesus says, because you are mine, I am interceding for you. I am praying for you. Last night, while you slept, or not, whichever the case may be, last night, while you were sleeping, Jesus was praying. And he was praying for you. And let me just say that the intercessory ministry of Christ, I believe, has saved my life. 
Some of you have heard part of this story before, but when I was 23 years old and graduated from the University of Tennessee, I went to Jackson, Mississippi in the fall of 1991. I was embarking on my seminary journey into pastoral ministry. By, by all rights and means, the, the whole world was in front of me, but inexplicably, I still can't explain it, it was almost as soon as I drove into the city limits, the darkness descended, the spiritual darkness. This was not a, a dark night of the soul. It was a dark season. It was a long season. Certainly there were many human factors and probably spiritual factors, satanic attack as well. I was, I was homesick. I was worried about my calling. I didn't know anybody. There was this ongoing murkiness around my relationship with my future wife. What was God calling me to do with her? What was God calling me to do in ministry? I was anxious. I was depressed. There would be days that I would get up and it would be like despair envelops me like a cloud. Here I was supposed to be training to open the God's word, to teach God's people. And I'll be honest, I could barely open the Bible for myself. But Jesus continued to pray for me. And even when I didn't feel like I could draw close to him, feel like I could open his word, feel I could feed upon his word, Jesus, as he prayed for me, activated the spirit in my heart and that the dormant truths that I had accumulated all throughout my Christian life that were just kind of laying there, God began to bring to life, to sustain me, to encourage me, to, to move me forward, to press me on. In fact, to what? Keep me. Understand something, whether you know it or not, if you're a believer, you're a sheep, you hear his voice, you follow him, the reason you are here today is that Jesus ascended to the right hand of his Father, and he is there right now, interceding on your behalf. Amazing stuff. That's why you are being kept. That's how you are being kept. Lastly, why are you being kept? Now, this is, this is pretty amazing. Verse 15. Here's part of what Jesus is praying for you and me today. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, let's be honest. When I read that, I'm like, well, darn. <laughs> because I kind of want to be out of the world. See, it would seem logical that because we're in the world, and Jesus is very clear, the world hates us, that if we're really going to be kept, if we're really going to last, if we're going to endure, that if we're going to persevere, then the, maybe the best thing we could do is just kind of seclude ourselves from the world. Let's, 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 let's focus on our personal purity. Let's remove ourselves from all contaminating influences, all schools, all music, all relationships. Let's be monastic. Let's move out to the desert Surely, Pastor Paul, if we just withdraw from this wretched place, we would be all the better. But Jesus says, never should it be. 
Verse 15 and 18, look at this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Now listen, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, there's a reason that you've been kept, Christian, if you're here this morning. You've been kept so that you can be sent. Verse 17 says, it's an interesting word that Jesus uses here. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. We we think that means like personal Bible study. That means like personal disciplines, growing in our faith. That's part of it. But actually the word means to be set apart for service. See, it's the same idea that applies to the high priest. As the high priest was set apart for service and mission on behalf of the people, and Jesus is now our high priest. This is what he says to us this morning, Four Oaks. You are now my priesthood. You are my priests and priestesses. You have been set apart in your keptness, not to live for yourselves, not to become absorbed in your materialistic lives, not to be perpetual consumers of all spiritual and material products, but you are here. You have been kept to serve. You have been kept to minister. See, being kept and ministering are not the holy vocation of the pastor or the missionary or the gospel partner. Whatever you do, Paul says, you do for the glory of God. Whatever you do is part of your priestly service to him. Whether you're a businessman, a doctor, a lawyer, you collect the trash, you manage properties, you stay at home with your kids, you work part-time, whatever the case may be, God says, do you see that as your sanctified, set-apart platform for mission, for ministry, for service? You know, a couple weeks ago, as our neighborhood is cleaning up all the debris from the hurricane, Susan encouraged us, she's always the one in our family to encourage us to do these things, encouraged us just to reach out to a couple of neighbors who were having a hard time, who had things going on in their life, and to, to help them to clean up. It wasn't, it wasn't a big thing. But one family in particular, you could tell the father was particularly struck by this. Tried to understand it, tried to make sense of the fact that people he, that he really doesn't know are coming out and helping him with his needs of his home and his family and his kids and his, and his yards. And he, and, he talks, and, he, and, he, and he talked about this. He said, he just, I'm just amazed at kind of the community that sort of happens here. You know, sometimes we're always looking like for a bridge to like get into the gospel And it's like, it seems like a bridge too far. And there's other times where God just seems to roll the red carpet out and say, what are you waiting on? (laughs) It was one of those times. I said, well, you know, let me me tell you what, why we're doing this. Let me tell you what this is about. Let me tell you what, what we really hope to see God do in the lives of people and neighbors and folks like yourself. And we had a little gospel conversation. Not every conversation is going to go that way. We understand that. But probably for most of us, a lot more of them do need to go that way that don't. 
And sometimes what inhibits us is because we don't see our service, our life, our coming to church as part of our priestly service. To, to, to be thinking about, no, not am I going to go to church this Sunday because hmm, who's preaching, who's, what, what's happening, is Joe starting the worship pastor yet, is there something for the kids, but who, who are my neighbors, who are my friends, who needs the life-giving community, who might belong to God, a sheep that has not yet heard his voice, that needs to hear his voice. So Jesus says, I've kept you in order to send you. Folks, this morning, as we have an opportunity to come to the table, we are doing so as the kept people of God who've been chosen by him, who he's died for, whom he has set apart, whom we are following whom is praying for us, and now, as we leave this place today, is sending us to say, go and do likewise.